Welcome to Psych Talk. I am your host, Jessica Lee, a licensed clinical psychologist. It is my mission to motivate, inspire, and educate you on everything psychology, mental health, and self-growth. Although topics discussed on this podcast are similar to therapy, Psych Talk is not a replacement for therapy and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Whether you are a mental health professional or student in the social science field, are interested in psychology and mindset shifts, or are just interested in gaining skills and knowledge to grow into the best version of yourself, this podcast is for you. My hope is to provide you with knowledge and skills that you can implement in your daily life that add up to make a big impact. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Psych Talk. So over the years of doing this show, I have done four episodes related to suicide and suicidal behavior. Episode 21 was called National Suicide Prevention Month. Episode 152 was the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Episode 154 was all about chronic suicidality with Dr. Z. And episode 155 were all about interventions for suicidal behavior. In all the years doing this podcast, I have only released episodes on suicide during National Suicide Prevention Month, which falls in September. And last September, I made it a goal to talk about suicide in other episodes during other times of the year. One, because suicide was my primary research focus in graduate school, so it is a topic I am extremely passionate about. And two, because it seems like you, the listeners, are interested in learning more about suicidality since those episodes tend to do very well. So in today's episode, I am going to talk about managing suicidal crises, both as a professional and as a layperson. I am not going to go into detail because it is not my story to share, but the inspiration for this episode came about when I was peripherally involved in helping someone I love who is not a mental health professional manage a suicidal crisis of an employee of theirs. So I got permission from the individual who I helped to make this episode, even though no details will be shared. However, going through this experience highlighted a few things for me. First, we can talk about suicide prevention all we want. However, when it comes to an acute crisis and we, the people that are trying to help, are also panicked, what we know or thought we knew may no longer apply or it's difficult for us to think logically about that information when in the midst of a crisis. As non-mental health professionals aren't trained in managing suicidal crises, they often don't know what to do or what options are available for them. And then further, even if you are a mental health professional who is trained, especially if it is one of your first suicidal crises, you may not fully know what to do. Um, and maybe your supervisor isn't picking up or you don't know the specific policies and procedures for your practice. So you are also panicked in the moment because the reality is suicidal crises are very scary. As I always want to make disclaimers with any episode, especially an episode talking about suicidality, what I'm going to share in this episode applies to the United States, as I cannot speak to resources and processes in other countries. 
Additionally, much of the information I am going to share is going to be general and may not be the best fit for your specific circumstance. However, as I do not know every suicidal person and suicidal crisis, nor am I the psychologist of every single person who may have a suicidal crisis, I'm going to try to provide practical steps and advice that most people can take and apply if they were to be in this situation. Additionally, If you are in graduate school to be a mental health therapist, if you are currently a therapist under supervision or a licensed therapist, please seek out supervision and consultation if this situation happens to you and follow your practices, policies, and procedures. I am a licensed psychologist. I have this podcast. I have a social media platform, but what I say may not specifically apply to you. And it's important that you seek supervision and consultation from those who know the specific circumstances you're in, know your offices, policies, procedures, state resources, etc. Further, I will touch on this more as I go through the episode, but none of these suggestions that I give or without risk. Um, the goal of helping someone who is in a suicidal crisis is to keep them alive and safe. With that being said, there may be some harm or trauma done, whether it be a rupture in the relationship, trauma from being hospitalized or transported by police or ambulance or other types of harm. I fully recognize this and I want to acknowledge it. And my primary goal of this episode is to communicate ways which you can increase safety and the likelihood of keeping your loved one alive. So first, I think it's important to to define what I'm talking about when I'm saying a suicidal crisis. So when I refer to a suicidal crisis, I mean someone that is imminently suicidal They have plans, means, and intent, and are unable to keep themselves safe. As clinicians, when we assess for suicidality, because it is a spectrum, we will assess for the following things. If the individual is having suicidal thoughts, if they have a plan to take their life, if they have means to take their life, if they have a time frame in mind, and if they plan on following through with their plan, otherwise known as intent. Every clinician functions differently. However, if I have someone that is having thoughts of suicide without means, plan, or intent, and we are able to safety plan, and they are able to keep themselves safe, or in the case of a minor, the legal guardian is also able to keep themselves, the minor safe, I will not take further steps such as hospitalization, which I will talk about here in a little bit. Um, However, not all clinicians function like me, and some will hospitalized or at least refer to the ER for suicidal thoughts alone. All of this to say, for the purpose of this episode, I'm talking about what to do when someone is actively suicidal and is in imminent risk of taking their own life. So the next question you might be wondering is, how can I tell if someone is actively suicidal? So usually the most definitive way to know is if they tell you directly or indirectly. So it may be a text or a phone call saying something like, goodbye, I love you, I'm sorry, or something more direct as is, I'm planning on killing myself today. I love you. However, people can be actively suicidal without directly telling you, which is why it is important to be aware of warning signs. I am pretty sure I have gone over warning signs of suicide in other episodes. I have absolutely covered it on social media. However, even if I have 
Um, but it's been a while since you've listened to a past episode on suicide or haven't listened to them at all. I think it's important to reiterate some of the warning signs of suicidal ideation and behavior to make you aware so that if you notice a number of these symptoms in a loved one, it may put up some alarms in your brain that you might need to pay more attention to them. I always emphasize that a single one of these things alone does not mean the individual is suicidal, but it is important to be aware of the combination of these things as well as a deviation from their typical pattern. So some verbal warning signs include talking about wanting to die, talking about being in unbearable pain, talking about death or having a fascination with death, expressing being a burden to others, expressing hopelessness about the future, or comments such as, it doesn't matter, I won't be here anyways, as well as saying goodbye. And obviously, as I just made the disclaimer, like saying goodbye when you're leaving after going out to eat is not what I'm talking about, but like a random text that just like, goodbye, I love you, out of nowhere. Emotional warning signs, feeling empty, hopeless, trapped, having no reason to live, being extremely sad, increased anxiety, agitated, anger, unbearable emotional or physical pain, as well as feeling guilty, shame, or anger. And then some behavioral warning signs, making a plan or researching ways to die, a recent suicide attempt, withdrawing from friends, saying goodbye, giving away important items, making a will, losing Interest in personal appearance or hygiene, engaging in risky behavior, so this could be driving fast, high-risk sexual behavior, gambling, etc., displaying extreme mood swings, eating or sleeping more or less, and using drugs or alcohol more often. So if someone you know is displaying these warning signs, it is important to ask them if they are thinking about killing themselves or ending their life, whichever language feels better for you. When asking, though, it is important to act directly. So saying something like, I have noticed, and then you insert the warning signs that you have noticed, and was wondering if you are having thoughts of killing yourself. Rather than asking indirectly, which may look like something like, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Um, Because they might say yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're thinking about killing themselves. And so then it would require further questioning. You also don't want to ask with judgment. So the example I always give when teaching on this and how to ask and talk about suicide is you never want to say, you aren't thinking about killing yourself, are you? Because the are you at the end or like the you aren't passes judgment. And somebody is, if they are thinking about it, they're not going to open up to you if they think you're going to be judgmental about it. So asking directly not only will hopefully give you a direct answer, but it can give you insight into direct steps. So somebody might be like, yeah, I actually have been thinking of killing myself and I hate these thoughts. Um, I have no intent or plan, but like they've just been on my mind a lot. So that might be a situation where you can help the person get in with a therapist because they're not imminent risk. Um, which I want to emphasize, it's important to take any suicidal thoughts seriously. But if the thoughts are distressing to them, they don't want to die, they don't have plan, that would be something that doesn't necessarily require immediate intervention and a higher level of care versus somebody saying like, yeah, actually I have been thinking about killing myself and I really want to die and I have this plan. So 
All of that to say, ask directly when assessing. So next I'm going to talk about what clinicians can do, and then I'll follow up with what lay people can do. So for clinicians, if you have a client who is actively suicidal in your office, the first step is to assess for suicidal ideation and behavior, and then safety plan. If the client is unable to safety plan, it is our duty as clinicians to get them to a higher level of care, which usually means hospitalization. I should have said this like a moment ago when I brought up safety plan. Hopefully if you are a mental health professional listening to this, you know how to safety plan. Um, Safety plans look different depending on organizations. Uh, They are not no suicide contracts. I know some organizations still use those, which I have strong feelings about those, but a safety plan generally includes things like coping skills, warning signs, um, three professionals they can call, three people they can reach out to, reasons for living, um, those types of things. Um, So if you are a clinician listening and you don't know how to safety plan and you have a supervisor or someone that you consult with frequently, ask them specifically for advice and direction on what to do. So different states have different procedures for hospitalization. So I'm not going to give you detailed steps on what to do because I don't know what to do in every state. However, as a licensed professional whose duty it is to keep your client safe, it is your responsibility to ensure that safety, which means likely getting them to the hospital. Most often, If a client is actively suicidal, we would want to transport them to the hospital by ambulance unless, like me, you work in a hospital and you can escort them to the ER directly, whether you yourself or you can get um, security involved if you're concerned about that or you and another um, provider in your office. Um, If they have a person with them and the client is willing to go to the hospital and they are deemed to be safe to ride in a car. And I emphasize that because when someone is suicidal, there is a risk of them throwing themselves out of a vehicle. Um, That may be another option. I want to say this is pending your comfort, the client's comfort, and the person they are with comfort, as well as any policies or procedures your practice may have in place. So for example, You know, I have had clients whose parents will drive them directly to the ER um, because they're deemed safe to drive in the car. Um, But I also know like our hospital has a policy when someone is transported to psychiatric inpatient, they can't be driven by their parents. They have to get medical transport. So I would also look at your practice policies and rules. While this is all taking place, so you're coordinating care, you are trying to assess, you're figuring out, you know, closest hospital, how they're going to get there, etc. Obviously, you have to stay with them or coordinate someone to stay with them, which is difficult if you are in solo private practice or provide telehealth only services. So for me, for example, since I work in clinic with doctors, nurses, and myself, if we have a client who is suicidal, we ensure that someone is with them at all times while the provider who saw them is getting them safe transport. Personally, and you don't have to do this, I will also call the hospital ahead of time and give them a heads up that I am sending a patient to them so they are aware. Um, This also potentially allows you to keep in contact and get updates. 
this also might be unique to me since I work for the hospital system. So if I am an outpatient clinic and sending someone to the ER, I will call, I mean, and I can see notes within the system and things like that. Another point to think about, obviously, if you are managing a suicidal crisis and have back-to-back patients, this can mean you're running late to your next appointment. So if you have front office staff or someone who can contact that client, or you yourself can contact that client via text or email and let them know you're running behind due to a crisis, please do so if you can. And this can be something that is really difficult because you want to show up for all of your clients And most therapists do not enjoy running behind. However, remember the ultimate goal is to keep your client alive. And until they are safely in the ambulance or whatever mode of transportation they are going by, it is important not to leave them. So those are my basic like guidelines overview for clinicians. Like I said, if you are listening to this and you are in graduate school or you are under supervision, or even if you're fully licensed, obviously follow your practices, policies, procedures, um, consult with people that are local to you, know the resources you have, steps to take, etc. But in general, our duty as licensed mental health professional is to keep our clients safe. And that often means that when they are actively suicidal, we have to get them to a higher level of care. So for non-clinicians, so if you are not a therapist, but have a loved one who has expressed that they are suicidal, just like a therapist, your goal in the crisis most likely will be to keep your loved one safe and alive. So my first tip, if you are with them, stay with them. It is important that they know that you are there and that you can keep an eye on them. If possible, when you're with them, separate them from any means that they could use to harm themselves. I want to emphasize though, separating them only if you are not going to be at risk of doing so. So for example, if they're holding a knife or a gun, you want to try to separate them by talking to them, not by grabbing it from them, because that could potentially cause harm to both of you. However, if they share your plan, their plan with you, but don't necessarily have the means on hand, try to keep them away from the means, as well as any other means that they could potentially hurt or kill themselves with. We do know from research that a lot of times, although some people may meticulously plan out their suicide um, attempt, a lot of them are pretty impulsive. Um, not saying that the suicidality is impulsive, but the actual attempt, meaning that they may have spent minutes to hours, very rarely days planning it out. So even if they have in mind a certain means, there is always potential they may use other means. So we want to separate from all potential means as best as possible. So these can include guns, knives, other weapons, pills, anything that could be a potential ligature risk. So belts, ropes, sheets, chemicals, poisons, just to name a few. Those are some of the most common ones that I see or when I'm doing safety planning with parents, tell them to lock up. If you know a loved one is suicidal, but you are not with them, try to ensure that someone is with them. So for example, if it is a friend, text another friend to see if they can get to that friend sooner or a family member of theirs that might be with them or have the potential to be with them a lot sooner than you can be. 
if they are alone or will not tell you where they are, try to get them on the phone and talk to them. Um, while you're doing this, it's important to listen to any sounds in the background that may help you determine where they are, um, especially if you're going to need to call for help at any point, which I'll get to here in a few minutes. Um, but it's important that if you are not with them and nobody is with them, or you're not sure if anyone's with them, that you keep them on the phone talking, even if it's just primarily you talking. You do not have to talk about things related to their suicidal ideation. Um, I do think it is important to emphasize that you want to help them, that you will be a listening ear um, if they want to talk about what's going on. Uh, but know that if they do not want to talk about it, it's better to have them talk about anything else to keep them on the phone than to force them to talk about something they don't want to and potentially hang up on you. This next thing I'm going to say may be obvious to some, but also not obvious to others. So I definitely want to say it. It is unhelpful to tell someone who is in a suicidal crisis, think about all the people who will miss you. Although I know the intent of this statement is to remind the individual how many people love them. When a person is acutely suicidal, they truly believe that them living is more of a burden to their loved ones than their loved ones would be and and that their loved ones would be better off without them. So them existing is going to be more of a burden to their loved ones than them dying. So making this statement of like think about all the people who will miss you usually instills guilt on top of the burdensomeness the individual already feels. Thus in contrast saying something different. So not saying that, um, but you can still tell them that you are here for them, that you want them to be okay. Ask them how you can help them, um, state that you're not getting off the phone with them. You can show them that you love and care for them without the guilt factor. Um, and obviously if you're with the person, these conversations can be the same. You want to keep them talking. You want to keep them engaged you want to be present, you want to actively listen. And so what I mean by that is like actually listen to their stories, not be distracted by things, hear them, validate, reflect back, all of those things. If you are with them, you can also encourage them to call a suicide hotline. So in the United States, our crisis line number is 988, which I did a whole episode on, so you can go back and listen to it. However, there are other crisis lines as well, because 988 is the general crisis line, but Trevor Project has a, their crisis line, Thrive Lifeline, Call Black Line. I can put all those links in the show notes. Um, but yeah, that might be another option. Like if you're kind of stuck or lost or don't know what to do, sit with them while they call one of these crisis hotlines. You can also encourage your loved one to call a crisis hotline if you are not with them. But if they are alone and you have them on the phone and do not necessarily know like where they are or would not be able to get to them or someone else is not able to get them, I personally wouldn't want to hang up with them unless you could guarantee that they are going to call a crisis line or that like somebody is on the way or you're on the way there. Um, but know that crisis lines are an option. So, okay, I guess I just did like the first kind of step. So either you're with them or you're on the phone with them. You know they're safe for the time being. And by safe for the time being, I mean 
you are physically with them or verbally with them. But like I already said, the ultimate goal is to get them help, to keep them alive, to keep them safe. And then although most suicidal crises are short-lived, and by suicidal crises, once again, I mean the individual being acutely suicidal with imminent plan and intent because we know chronic suicidality is a thing and I don't want to make people misinterpret what I'm trying to convey because like suicidality can last years upon years upon years. But the crises based on research are usually short lived. However, even if the client said, or not the client, gosh, even if the individual, I guess if you're a mental health professional, it could be a client, but even if the individual says like, you know what, after talking with you, I'm no longer suicidal, it is still important that the individual gets help. Because we know that the number one predictor of a future suicide attempt is a past suicide attempt. And it's also hard to know, like they might feel better in the moment, but how are they going to feel an hour from now? So that leads me to kind of the next step beyond just, you know, being with them and listening to them. And I recognize that the things I'm about to say do come with some potential risks and trauma. So I'm going to emphasize again that the goal of managing a suicidal crisis is to keep the person alive. Thus, you want to get professional help as soon as possible. And unfortunately, in the United States with our mental health care system, unless the person already has a therapist and that therapist happens to have like crisis slots or an open slot, usually getting them care immediately means going to the ER. I don't know any places, at least around me or any states I've worked in, that you can just kind of like walk in to a clinic um, when you're having a crisis. So with that being said, if the person is willing to go to the ER with you and you feel like they are safe to travel in a car, take them to the ER. If they are willing to go but are unsafe to be in a car, call an ambulance or a mobile crisis unit to transport them. So at the ER, the individual will be evaluated for suicide risk by a psychiatrist. Um, They may potentially get referrals. They may be potentially placed in an acute psychiatric facility, receive medication changes. All of that would depend on how they present while there, the assessment, um, what their current mental health support is, etc., So I do want to note that the ER visits can be traumatizing for people depending on how the staff handles the situation. I have talked to people that have had amazing experiences in an ER when experienced a suicidal crisis. I've talked to people whose experiences have been pretty neutral or run of the mill. And I've talked to a number of people with really negative experiences. I can't speak to every hospital, how everyone is trained, and what the policies and procedures are. So I know there's going to be individual differences and, you know, it it could be individual differences based on the same individual having different experiences at different times. So if you have been traumatized in the ER, I am so sorry. The goal should always be your safety. And unfortunately, not all staff ensure that safety in a compassionate manner. And I don't want the risk of having a negative experience in the ER, stop someone from going to the ER if that is the thing that could potentially save their life. Now, we were just talking about that, assuming the person is willing to go. If they are 
unwilling to go to the ER. If you have a local mobile crisis unit, call them to come out to wherever the individual is. So every state is different, but in general, mobile crisis services are community-based interventions designed to um, provide de-escalation and relief to individuals experiencing behavioral health or substance use-related crises wherever they are. So whether they're at home, work, school, on the side of the road somewhere, So they respond to crises and provide stabilization services. Some will help transport to hospitals. It just depends on the state. So definitely look up if your state or city has a local mobile crisis unit. If you do not have a mobile crisis unit and the individual is unwilling to go to the ER, call 911. Like I said, when talking about the ER, I recognize calling 911 can come with its own trauma and problems, especially if you are a racial or ethnic minority. Luckily, there are some first responder units out there in the United States that have hired social workers that will come out and respond to a mental health crisis since they are trained in mental health. However, from my understanding, these are few and far between. Thus, it's most likely EMTs, police, etc. coming out to the house or wherever the location of the individual is. So similar to the ER, I recognize there is real risk for individuals to have a traumatizing experience. And I do not want anybody to be traumatized. That is not my goal of sharing these tips or steps. And with that being said, if the person you love is acutely suicidal and resistant to help, unfortunately, we don't have many other options in the United States. So ultimately, no solution is perfect or without potential harm or risk. However, the goal is to keep the person alive and safe. And I know I keep repeating that and I probably sound like a broken record, but that is the ultimate goal. If you have a loved one who is acutely suicidal and you want them to be alive, then your goal is to do what you can to keep them alive. Obviously, in a crisis, it is obviously easier if the person is willing to get help, but we know that's not always the case. If the individual is able to get to the ER, whether willingly or unwillingly, they can be evaluated. If they're unwillingly there, they can be put on a psychiatric hold if necessary to help ensure their safety. And although, like... Like I said, people have bad experiences with these things and they are traumatized. The intent is for good. The intent is to keep people alive and safe. How these protocols are implemented at times does not always have that effect. But if you are someone that is either living with someone or know someone who's acutely suicidal and you want to help, or maybe you're listening to this and you are acutely suicidal. I know the things I suggested, especially when it comes to higher level of care can be really scary. Even calling a crisis line can be extremely scary. And I don't want that fear to be the thing that holds you back from potentially saving your life. So there is obviously more nuance to this and every situation is unique However, these are just some general guidelines as options of what you can do. It also depends on resources available in your area, um, resources available to you, resources available to the individual who's suicidal. You may live in an area that has an abundance of resources that I don't know about and that are better options for someone. But these are some basic steps that potentially can help your loved one stay alive. 
crisis hotlines are available everywhere. Um, ERs, I mean, granted, if you're in a rural community, it may be a bit of a hike, but yes, ERs are available. There are psychiatric units, all of those types of things. So, um, and like I said, states are different when it comes to mobile crisis units, but definitely look up those as well. So I think that's all I want to cover in this week's episode. As always, thank you for joining. I hope you learned something. Please share this episode with someone who you think would benefit from it or would learn something from it. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We actually recently just hit 50,000 downloads, which is a milestone that I've been chasing for a while. I posted this on my Instagram stories, but I recognize for many podcasts, especially those have been who have been around as long as mine has, um, that this may not be a big number, but I also realized that many podcasts will never hit 50,000 downloads. So I started this podcast. If you've been a listener from the beginning, you know, sorry to share the story again in 2020 as a pandemic project to get more nuanced, detailed mental health information out there compared to what I could post on social media. I didn't have a following at that time. I didn't know what I was doing at that time. And as I share so often, two weeks to the day after I launched the first episode of this podcast, I found out I was pregnant and I didn't know once my daughter was born, if I was going to keep up with it. And I just realized I loved it. I love connecting with guests. I love making these solo episodes. I love getting mental health information out there that's accurate and more accessible to people that maybe wouldn't have access to this information. So I've kept up with it. And over the past nine months, the rate of downloads and listens has doubled compared to the three years prior. So thank you listeners, new and old, for tuning in each week. I have a ton of new guest episodes coming over the next few months, many of which are on topics I have yet to touch on on this podcast, which is pretty impressive since this is episode 174. Um, So I'm just so excited for what's to come for this podcast. Um, And thank you as always for just being here with me. Um, I love podcasting and I probably would still do it even if that 50,000 downloads was only 5,000 after all of this time. But Knowing what you all like, getting feedback from you, everything makes it even extra worth it to me. So thank you as always, and I will see you in next week's episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Psych Talk. I hope you found so much value. If you loved what you heard or gained some knowledge, I would love for you to take a screenshot, put it on your Instagram stories, and tag me at Jessica Lee PhD. Additionally, I would be honored if you leave a review and five-star rating so I can continue to help this podcast grow. If you are not already, follow me on Instagram and join my Facebook community, Grow Through What You Go Through. Thank you for joining me today, and I cannot wait for you to join me during the next episode. Remember, you are loved, you are worthy, and you are braver than you know.